Our scripture lesson this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 9 through 14, reading in Jesus' name. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests and to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne all the living creatures and the elders with voices of many angels numbering myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and we thank you for your church, Lord, as seen here in this particular passage. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear the word church? Most of us think of a building. And that idea is strengthened by the language we use when we say things like, are you going to church this weekend? Or how did it go at church today? Or, hey, hon, I need to head over to the church and check on something. But initially, the church did not begin with a building. It began with a theological construct. The first time we see the word church in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 16, verses, verse 18, where Jesus says that he will build his church. In one sense here, that Greek word that is used that we translate as church, ekklesia, can be compared to the word synagogue. They both mean an assembly or a religious congregation. But the first time that Jesus uses this word, he was not referring to a particular building at a certain address and that had individual people as members. He was thinking beyond that. He was, had a global mission in mind. Next week, we're going to be covering the topic of the local congregation. There's much written about that, especially in the book of Acts and Paul's letters. Uh, but the best place to get a picture of the universal church is in the book of Revelation, where we see it from a heavenly and eternal perspective. And over the next three weeks, we are looking in this foundational triad at the church. And so in Revelation 5, 9 through 14, which we just read here, we see five things about this universal church. First of all, we see that it is a ransom church. In these verses in Revelation, we see that there is a lamb who is worthy to open the scrolls and set in motion the end times. The first reason listed here for his worthiness is that he ransomed people for God. This word ransomed literally means that he bought them back. And this can be a very confusing verse because when we study the doctrine of God the Father, we recognized that he owns everything. And so how is it that he has to buy something back that already belongs to him? I think that this is where the word ransomed is so important. Because usually when we think of a ransom, it's connected to a kidnapping. And so a thief or a terrorist will typically kidnap a child of a wealthy person or uh, the citizen of a powerful nation. And then they hope to receive a large sum of money in exchange for the returned kidnapped person. Typically in a kidnapping, the person held for ransom doesn't have the money on hand, and so they're reliant on somebody else who's free. 
and whether that's their, grand, their parents, grandparents, uh, the government of the country where they are citizens. And so the question here in this particular passage is, who are the people who were ransomed? Who was the kidnapper? And what was the payment? Well, first of all, the ones kidnapped were the children of God. And sometimes in kidnappings, when uh, a kidnapper is trying to lure a child, especially, they'll use something like candy and they'll pretend to be their friend. Well, in the case of God's children here, the kidnapper used a piece of fruit and pretended to be a confidant. Obviously, the kidnapper here is the devil. Jesus called him the murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He's a thief. But the perplexing, uh, perplexing, perplexing question for me is why? Why does the devil want to kidnap us and kill us? In most states across the country, the prison system has what's called a supermax facility. And these fortresses house the worst of the worst. Uh, the serial killers, the notorious gang leaders, uh, they keep them away from the general population because uh, the prison staff know that if those people are let uh, loose to run around in the general facility, they'll end up harming the other inmates because they don't have anything to lose. Well, the devil has nothing to lose. He knows that he's going to be cast into the lake of fire, and so he's raging against human beings. His very nature has changed into that of a criminally insane being. An old Russian fable illustrates the point perfectly, I think. A scorpion wants to cross a river and cannot swim, and so he asks a frog to climb on his back and cross over with him. The frog hesitates, afraid that the scorpion is going to sting right in the middle of uh, the voyage across the river there. But the scorpion argues that if he stung him, they would both go down and die. And so the frog considers this argument as sensible and agrees to transport the scorpion. The frog lets the scorpion climb on its back, then begins to swim. Midway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog anyway, dooming them both. And the dying frog asks the scorpion why it stung him despite knowing the consequence, to which the scorpion replies, I can't help it, it's my nature. <laughs> well, what about this last question? What's the ransom price and to whom it was it paid? Well, obviously the price isn't paid to the devil. He's not benefiting from kidnapping children here uh, and trying to ransom them. The price is paid to death itself. Self. Death has a claim on all mankind because of our rebellious connection with Satan. That's why this says here in this book of Revelation that the Lamb ransomed people with his blood. He paid your death debt. And this is how you become now a part of the universal church. This is how you've become one of the immortals. Next we see here that the universal church is a scattered church. In the Revelation passage, it says that those who are ransomed are from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In other words, your immortal brothers and sisters are everywhere. And this very fact makes racism for the Christian absolutely ridiculous. There's no supreme race. There's no longer a specific people who are considered to be the chosen people. But some might say, well, Pastor Scott, I thought the Jews were the chosen people. Well, yes, they were. At a certain time in history, when the world had devolved into paganism, God chose a specific family line to reveal himself to. He taught them about his nature. 
He taught them about what he expected of humans. But after Christ came, the possibility of becoming one of God's children or chosen ones was made available to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. We are now a continuation of God's grand plan that began with the people of Israel, but now extends to us. It may sound strange, but you are a Jew. <laughs> As stated in Romans 2, 28-29, a man is not a Jew because he is one outwardly, meaning genetically. No, a man is a Jew because he is one inwardly or spiritually. God promised this to Abraham when he made this covenant with him in Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18. God tells him, I will multiply your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies, and, though your, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. When I was a child in Sunday school, we used to sing a song called Father Abraham. The lyric said, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. And so everywhere that you go, you will find these sons and daughters of Abraham scattered among the nations of the world. And one of the truly amazing things that I've found as I've traveled the world is that anytime I meet Christians anywhere, there is an immediate connection with them and an immediate kinship. This is because we have the same Holy Spirit in all of us. And that Holy Spirit is fellowshipping with the Spirit in them, for better lack of terms there. Third, we see that the universal church is a priestly church. One of the most significant aspects of the Reformation was Martin Luther's focus on the priesthood of all believers. As a former Catholic monk, he had been indoctrinated to believe that only the clergy had access to God. Catholic priests would stand in the gap between God and the rest of mankind. And the head of the Roman church there, the Pope, uh, was called the Vicar of Christ. This word vicar means in place of, and that's where we get the word vicarious from. The Pope is supposedly the true representation of Christ on earth. But Luther destroyed this lie with his teachings on the doctrine of vocation. He proved from scripture that the lowly housewife at work doing the laundry was just as much a priest before God as the Pope himself. The main scripture that he used in his argument was 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so anyone at any time can declare the praises of the one who called us out. Even a little child can represent Christ to a fallen world. And this is the beauty of the universal church. I was working at the barber shop on Tuesday, and I had a customer named Nathan who sat down in my chair. And as we began to talk, I told him I was a pastor, and I was working just one day a week there cutting some hair. And he asked me which church that I was at, and I told him that it was Elam. And he said, okay, well, I know that church. It's the one with the big parking lot next to the high school. And I said, oh, so are you a Christian? And he said, well, I was raised a Christian, but have not been to church in a while. And I said, well, maybe it's time to come back. In that moment, I was acting as a priest. I was representing God to a wayward son. You can carry out your mission as a priest anywhere, not just in church, the grocery line, standing at your neighbor's fence, 
in the lunchroom at work, anywhere. Revelation 5.10 says that the Lamb has made us a kingdom and priests to our God. One of the main ways we carry out this priestly duty is through prayer. We're continually lifting up and we're uh, bringing the lost and the hurting before the Lord. In Ezekiel 22.30, God is looking for someone to fulfill their priestly role for Israel. He says, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. And so your mission is to build up the wall and stand in the gap or the breach for your fellow man. As the universal church, let us rise up against the onslaught of the enemy and fulfill our purpose as priests before God. Fourth, we see that the universal church is a reigning church. The Revelation passage here goes on to say that we are not only priests, we are also royalty in waiting. We will reign with Christ on the new earth. Here in the United States, we don't think much about royalty unless you're one of those weirdos who's really into the royal family. <laughs> but I can guarantee that John here, who wrote the book of Revelation, was pretty excited about the prospect of being part of the royal family. You see, John was a Roman prisoner on the island of Patmos when he was doing this writing. His nation had been in captivity or oppressed by foreign powers for over 600 years. He had never seen the kind of freedom that we enjoy in this country. Imagine here in the United States, growing up in a country that was controlled by another country like, say, China. Think of how that would affect your psyche. You could never really own land. You had no opportunity to change things through your voting or serving the public through politics. All your educational decisions would be made for you, and even where you worked would be controlled by a hostile communist power. This was the world that John lived in. The glory of, the, of King Solomon and King David were stuff of legend and myth and were long gone. But then Jesus gives John a glimpse of the world to come, a world in which all of God's children would rule and reign alongside him. And this is the ultimate destiny of the universal church. As Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And even though we may not seem victorious in the moment when we look at the church around us, in fact, we may be led to believe that we are in retreat, we will win in the end. I want you to note the militancy that Jesus alludes to here. The gates of hell will not prevail. Gates are defensive. They keep certain people out, and as in the case of a prison, keep certain people in. And as the church, we can charge right up to the very gates of hell and snatch out prisoners who are currently being bound by the devil, really imprisoned in a living hell. Finally, we see here that the universal church is a worshiping church. John here sees the church before the throne of God, praising him for his great and glorious deeds. Because ultimately, we are worshipers. We are made to have a relationship with our Creator. Now, many people can get hung up on this idea. They'll say things like, isn't God kind of selfish? I mean, he creates this species with uh, just a purpose to worship him and to be forced into bowing down to him. Yet at the same time, they have no issue worshiping a celebrity or a sports figure or even a lover. Worship is our expression of gratitude 
to a loving Father. We are thanking him for giving us life, for caring for our needs, for giving us the hope of eternal life. And someone once said to me, Pastor, isn't it going to be boring worshiping God forever? And to me, that's like saying, Pastor, isn't it going to be boring walking around the world, traveling and looking at beautiful natural wonders? <laughs> We've lived here for about four months now, and I'm still awestruck every time I see the clouds lift in the mountains and I get a peek of the uh, giant pile of rocks there with the snow on the top of it. How much more awestruck will we be when we meet the king of the universe? Especially when we begin to grasp the reality of who we are in him as sons and daughters. In conclusion this morning, when we study the universal church, there are three main reactions that I think are natural for us. First, we get an appreciation for our brothers and sisters, all down through time and space that we are intrinsically linked to forever. It expands our horizons. Second, we break free from the grasp of denominationalism. And third, we gain a clearer view of our eternal destination. Next week, we're going to be looking at a continued study of the local church here and the importance of it as we gather each week as believers. And Father, I thank you for this time together. I pray for your universal church around the country and the world, Lord. Strengthen it and help us in our task and our mission. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.